0: Just a quick final announcement. Hi, guys. Uh, One quick final announcement. Uh, On Saturday morning from 8 to 1 p.m., there is uh, work being done over at the Pennsburg Church. So if you guys want to go help out, um, there's some painting, and I think they're doing some stuff with flooring, things like that. So from 8 to 1 on Saturday, if you can uh, head on over, uh, they would love your help. That being said, we're going to continue our series here in Kingdom Come. And uh, I actually came across an article on ministry127.com. Called the deci- deceitfulness of sin, I thought it tied in pretty well to what we're going to discuss tonight. So here's what the article says: One of the largest freshwater turtles is the alligator snapping turtle. Anyone ever heard of an alligator snapping turtle? <laughs> All right. So this is—they are found primarily in the southeastern United States, and these massive turtles have been known to weigh close to 250 pounds. They are carnivorous. And while their diet is primarily fish, they have been known to eat almost anything else they can find in the water, even in a few cases, some small alligators. The alligator snapping turtle relies on on a uniquely deceitful method of foraging for a fish. The turtle will lie completely still on the floor of a lake or river with its mouth wide open. At the end of the turtle's tongue is a small pink worm-shaped appendage and the turtle wiggles the end of its tongue so, that, so, it, so it looks like a worm moving through the water. When a fish comes to eat the worm, the turtle's jaws rapidly close, trapping the fish so that it cannot escape. Similar to the snapping turtle's lure, temptation comes in the disguise of something desirable, but always carries destruction with it in the end. If we could see the end result rather than t- tempting the part, it would be far easier to resist. But Satan knows this, so he cleverly disguises what is deadly in disguise of something pleasurable. So over the last four weeks, we've been, we've been looking at the life of King David, and we've been seeing how David has been very obedient and very trustworthy to the Lord. And some of you may be thinking, man, this David guy seems pretty perfect. Well, today we're going to blow that cover, and we're going to see how David chose sin instead of choosing God. How he chose sin, and because of his sin, he brought destruction to his family. But most importantly, we're going to see how God forgives David because of his repentance. And with that, if you would join me in in a time of prayer. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for every student every leader that is here this evening, Lord God. Father, I pray for your strength tonight, Lord God. I pray that it is your words and not my words that are being spoken here this evening, Lord God. And Father, I pray that our hearts and minds are open to this message. I pray that we see the truth of how bad sin can be. We see the truth of what it truly means to come to you in repentance. And we truly believe that you do forgive us, Lord God. Father, thank you for what's going to happen here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, so we're picking up in chapter 11 of Second Samuel, where we're going to get a glimpse of the four sins that David committed. And these four sins are lust, adultery, deception, and murder. Again, lust, deception, murder, and adultery. So let's start with lust. And at this time, David is actually home in his castle. And early on in chapter 11, it shares that David should have actually been out to battle with his comrades. But instead, he decided to stay home and relax. In my personal opinion, David at this point is starting to get comfortable. He's starting to become complacent. He knows that... He looks around and he's like, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. You know, I think I can relax and enjoy the moment. I think I have finally arrived as king. So he stays idle. And as Proverbs tells us, idle hands are the devil's workshops. And so while he's idle and he's complacent, he decides to get up from his couch. And he starts roaming the roof of the palace. And then the text in the Bible shares us what happens next. So 2 Samuel 11, verses 2 through 3, it says, He saw a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful in appearance. David sent word and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David saw his best friend's wife bathing. And so he had a sexual desire. He was starting to lust for her. And now his servant friend, now he's not, David didn't forget, oh, who is this? His servant friend is telling him like, David, this is Uriah's wife. This is your best friend's wife. Warning, don't do this. I want to pause for a moment in regards to, to this, this this temptation of lust that all of us face. See, we live in a culture called a hookup culture today, where there's technology and there's apps where it's very easy for you to swipe right, swipe left, click yes, click no, and it encourages one time stands and it encourages sex outside of marriage. And there's also other media out there where you can watch pornography. And through that, you can also find a way to fulfill that sexual desire through masturbation. I want to read something in First Thess- Thessalonians for you guys. For this is the will of God, that you be sanctified, separated, and set apart from sin that you abstain and back away from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, being available for God's purpose and separated from things profane, not to be used in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God and are ignorant of his will. See, while God intended sex in marriage to be a beautiful thing, sex outside of marriage, viewing pornography, fulfilling your sexual desire through pleasing yourself taints the image of what God created sex to be. I think we all need to ask ourselves this following question. Is, whether it's hooking up, watching pornography, reading explicit novels, masturbating, whatever it is, Is this demonstrating control of my body? Or are you just trying to fulfill a sexual desire? So with that, David's lust for Bathsheba was so strong that it led him to his second sin, which was adultery. And the text says, and starting in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And she, she, and when she was purified from her uncleanliness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent word and told David, I am pregnant. Now David received warning from his servant saying, don't do this. This is your best friend's wife. But his temptation was stronger than his warning, and he said, it doesn't matter. Bring her to me. And so they had sex together. And David being king, he could have easily been like, "Ah, oh, I'm going to get away with this, it's fine, it's no big deal. Until Bathsheba comes and says, I'm pregnant. Now David had two choices in this moment. He could have either repented for his sin, tried to make amends of what happened, or he's going to try to figure out a way to get away with this, try to cover it up. And unfortunately, he, he, he chooses the latter. He decides, I've got to find a way to cover this up, which leads into his third sin, which is deception. And deception, or to deceive someone, means you misguide or mislead someone from the truth of what actually happened. There are a few occasions when David deceives someone. Number one, he's going to deceive Uriah, who is his best friend. And he's going to deceive Israel... And we're going to jump into this. So how does he deceive Uriah? First thing here, says, Then David sent word to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the people were doing, and how the war was progressing. So you see here, David's just trying to make some small talk. How are things going? Things going well? Good. Okay. So then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet and spend time at home. And so Uriah left the king's palace, and a gift from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's palace with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not just come from a long journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in huts, temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Should I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. So I want to pause here for a moment. So David is trying to say, hey, Uriah, right. I know it's been a, ba- it's been a long battle. You know, you're probably tired or probably hungry. You probably haven't gotten a good night's sleep. Go home to your wife. And by the way, we're going to send you a gift. And, and most scholars believe that gift was food so they can just enjoy each other's company and a great meal and everything like that. And Uriah says, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and the end of the verse really sticks out to me because I truly believe by that verse David could be convicted. I'm going to reread it and just listen. And so Uriah said to David, "The Ark of Israel and Judah are staying in huts, temporary shelters, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Should I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife, my wife? Think how convicting that could be for David. David a king who's supposed to be in battle with Uriah and the rest of the comrades. Here's these words come out of Uriah's mouth. If I were David, I'd be like, hmm, that hits home a little bit. So then let's see what David says next. So then David said to Uriah, stay here today as well and tomorrow, and I will let you leave. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next... And now David called him to dinner and he ate and drank with him so that he made Uriah drunk. In the evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord and still did not go down to his house. David at this point is probably thinking, what do I need to do to get Uriah to go to his house? I try to send him a gift, he's not going. I get him drunk, he's not going. One pastor said it this way, Uriah had more character when he was drunk than David had when he was sober. Think about it. Uriah had more character when he was drunk than David had when he was sober. And so since David couldn't get Uriah home, we see, the, we see another way he's going to deceive people and we lead to his fourth sin of murder. And the scriptures say this, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. He wrote in the letter, Put Uriah in the front line of the heaviest fighting and leave him so that he may be struck down and die. So it happened that as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew the enemy's valiant men were positioned. And the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among the servants of David fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So David sends a message with Uriah. And here again is Uriah's character. Uriah could have easily opened that letter, and be like, oh, I wonder what D- D- King David's going to say to Joab. He could have easily opened that letter, but he decided not to. And so David plans a murder for Uriah. And the people of Israel are deceived. They believe this man died valiantly as a a soldier. But instead he was murdered by the king. And we see here that David's sin is just making him foolish. It's making him stupid. He decides over and over again to sin, to cover up his sin, instead of just repenting and saying, you know what? I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry. And, I, and, and you know, try to figure out how to amend the situation. And so David has this cover-up, and he thinks he has everyone fooled. He thinks he has all the people fooled, when in reality we know he doesn't have all the people fooled. Number one, Joab knows what he did. And I'm sure there's other commanders and comrades that are figuring out what's going on here. But let's hypothetically say, say that David did have everyone fooled. All humanity, anyways. There was one being he didn't fool, and that was God. And at the end of verse 27, we see how God responds to this. But the thing that David had done with Bathsheba was evil in the sight of the Lord. So how does God respond to this wickedness? How does God respond to David's sin? He first sends a prophet named Nathan to confront him on it. And Nathan starts off by sharing a parable with David about a king who killed a poor man's lamb. I encourage you all to, to read chapter 11 and 12 of Second Samuel to really understand uh, what happens in that parable and throughout those chapters. Anyways, it gets to a point after saying it, David gets so angry, gets so enraged and says, I don't know who that man is, but I want him here and I want him dead for what he has done. And then the prophet responds this way. You are the man, David. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you as king over Israel, and I spared you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, and put your master's wives into your care, and under your protection. And I gave you the house, the royal dynasty of Israel and of Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have given you more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David, at this point, has been caught red-handed. And now David, because of his sinful action, because God is a just God, a sovereign God, who knows of perfect justice, says, David, there is a punishment that needs to happen. And so through the prophet it says, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken his wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up evil against you from your own household, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and in broad daylight. Daylight. David's wickedness, David's sin, didn't just affect him in that immediate moment. It affected his family moving forward. I encourage you to read the rest of the chapters. All of this comes through. Everything that the prophet Nathan says, all comes true. And now David is faced again. What am I going to do? Am I going to justify my sin Am I going to justify my sin before a prophet, before God, and say, I had the right because I was king? No, instead he decides to repent. And he says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. But there's more to that repentance. In Psalm 51, starting at verse 4, we get a more in-depth look of what that repentance from David looks like. And it says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak your sentence, and faultless in your judgment. I was brought forth in a state of wickedness. In sin my mother conceived me, and from my beginning I too was sinful. Behold, you, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part of my heart you will make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness and be satisfied. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right and steadfast spirit within me. I don't know about you, but I I read that. I read a repentance, and I think I get convicted. I get convicted by David's repentance. You know why? Because I think about every time I repented to God about my sins and how shallow and pathetic they are. I think about all the times I would go back to God and say, God, please forgive me. Amen. How pathetic to go to a holy God, a God who created everything, a God who created you, a God we're called to obey, and we think we can just come to His throne like it's no big deal that we sin. Shame on me. And now, it may be easy to think as we look at these events surrounding the life of David, it could be very easy to think oh, well, now we, the, the, the object of the story, or the, the, we give glory to David, and we should learn to repent like David. Well, there's some truth to that. The bigger truth is that we must give glory to God. Why? Because He forgave. And that's what we see here. Nathan said to David, The Lord has allowed your sins to pass without further punishment. You shall not die. See, David easily, because of the Levitical law, because he committed murder, he committed adultery, he should have been put to death. But we get a glimpse of God's mercy. We get a glimpse of his grace and where God spares his life. And we get a glimpse of the gospel message here as well. Every single one of us are born sinners. No one in here is perfect. And I'm sorry if someone told you, ah, you're perfect in every way. I'm sorry. You're not. I'm not. We've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God and we all deserve death as punishment. But because of God's grace through what he did through his son Jesus Christ, we are saved from eternal punishment. And this is how he does it. John 3:16 and 17 because I feel like everyone knows John 3:16. But they forget 17. And it says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world that He might condemn the world but that the world might be saved through Him. And some of you may be thinking right now, Oh, now I know what Mike's going to say. We're all saved because... Christ lived a perfect life. He died for my sins, and He rose again on the third day. Which is true. But let's not be so shallow about it. Let's not be so, oh yeah, well I know what's going to happen here. Yeah, I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved by the cross. Do you really? Do you really understand what Christ did for you? He bore all of our sins past, present, and future. I understand the physical aspect may have been tough, but we have to recognize he bore the spiritual aspect of our sins. And then the next thing, he took on God's wrath that we all deserve. We should never get to the point, oh yeah, I know the gospel message. Oh yeah, I've heard this three, four, five million times. Yeah, I know this. No, no. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't care if you've heard it a million times. Every time we hear the gospel message, we should be in a place in awe and wondering like, God, how could you be so merciful and thank God for His mercy and His grace? So tonight, we're actually um, to remember what Christ did for us. We're going to take, partake in the Lord's Supper, or our, as people call it, communion. And maybe some of you have partaken, in this for the, have partaken in this before. Maybe this is your first time partaking in it. You may have questions about it. You may not understand what really goes on. And I want to, I want to read something in 1, in 1 Corinthians 11 from the Apostle Paul. To, to help you understand a little bit more about the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Communion. For I received from the Lord Himself, this is Paul speaking, for I received from the Lord, Lord Himself that instruction which I passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which He was betrayed took bread and He had given thanks. He broke it and said, this, rep- this is my body which is offered as a sacrifice for you. Do this in an affectionate remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This this cup is the new covenant ratified and established in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in in affectionate remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are symbolically proclaiming the fact of the Lord's death until he comes again." So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a way that is unworthy of him will be guilty of profan- profaning and sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. But a person must prayerfully a person must prayerfully examine himself and his relationship to Christ, and only when he has done so should he eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without solemn reverence and heartfelt gratitude for the sacrifice of Christ eats and drinks a judgment on himself if he does not recognize the body of Christ. That careless and unworthy participation in the reason why many among you are wicked and sick and a number sleep in death. So what we're about to do tonight is not just some ritual. It's not just some, oh, yeah, we remember this. Yeah, we remember this. No, 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 no. Let's let's think back to the first century church who always would give thanks to the Lord by doing this and remembering what He did. When we take communion, we should be in awe in the presence of what we're doing. We should remember the love that Christ has given to us, and we should be looking around as fellow believers in Christ and knowing... We're in this together. We're fighting for the kingdom of God. Now, we may not be facing persecution in America like they did. But think about this for a moment. In the first century church, when they would look around and they would have communion, one person would have a scar on his face. Another one may have lashes on his back. One person may lose their eye because they got stoned. Whatever the cause, they were being persecuted for Christ. And they still did in remembrance. And then some of them with tearful eyes when they would do this, would look around and think how many of their brothers and sisters died because of Christ, for for Christ's kingdom. We're going to go into a time of communion. And we're going to go into a time of prayer and worship. But here's the thing when it comes to communion. I'm not going to have someone come up and pass it around to everyone. Scriptures tell us we need to examine our hearts. We need to examine why we're doing what we're doing. We also need to examine if there's any forgiveness, if there's any repentance that needs to be made before we take communion. We need to go to God. We need to go to our fellow brothers and sisters and say, I need to confess something. And I need to pray about it. I need to come to the Lord. We need to prayerfully examine what we're about to partake in. So I encourage you all, if, if you want to get into smaller groups, I'm going to be up here. We have some leaders around. We're going to take some time. We're going to prayerfully examine. And we'll come back after those who have chosen to partake in it. We will take communion. I want to share because I don't want to be. I don't want to just be a, a sayer, of the word I want to be a doer. I want to <laughs> preach what I'm saying. So let me confess to you guys some of my sins that I've had to overcome. Just a couple days ago, I deleted my Facebook account. I deleted all of my social media accounts from Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, everything. And you know why? <clears throat> I recognized I was using it as an idol. I recognized that that would be the first things I would always check, and I know that because over the last couple of days, anytime i 'm quote bored, I want to go right to it i 'm like nope, i can 't To me, that shows I had an addiction problem for number one. But the other way I was idolizing it is because I was idolizing myself. I would look online and see how things are going here with photos and posts and how people are commenting, oh, man, you're doing an awesome job. And I would go back and say, yeah, look at what I'm doing. Look at what my leaders are doing. We're great. And I never give God the glory for what's happening here. And the second thing I want to repent of, and, and... God's been showing me through scriptures and some different readings. I, I'm. While we love to have fun, we have group activities and free play and everything like that. But in this setting, in this time, I never want to be in a position where I'm trying to entertain you just to get you guys to listen to the gospel message. We should, when we read the scriptures, when I teaching the Word to you, teaching the Word to myself. I should never try to entertain it to get your guys' attention. Us reading the words from the Scriptures should be enough. That should be powerful enough to say, look what God is saying, look what God is doing. And so I apologize and I confess my sins. If at any point I've been up here to try to entertain you, To act in ways that if only I do say it this way, or if I only say it that way, that I can get them to listen to the gospel message. Yeah, it's not about me. It's about what God's doing. So with that, let's take some time. Go into prayer. Whether there's someone you trust as a leader, or a couple of your friends. Let's take some prayer. Let's examine our hearts before we go into this time of communion one there with worship